Good morning. I know we, it may feel like we're rushing things a little bit, but we want to try to get started promptly so that we don't uh, impinge on the teaching that happens in the next hour, both in Sunday schools and, in, and downstairs in Philip's class. So um, we will pray in just a moment, but I want to start by saying this morning um, we're going we're gonna to wrap up the passage in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, in which Paul explains the marvelous benefits of our justification. Uh, it might be more appropriate to say that we're going to finish unwrapping these glorious benefits because the way Paul presents these promises is as if he's peeling back the, the, the wrappings uh, from the free gift of justification that God has given to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And he's setting out before us everything that's inside that beautiful package. All the things that are true of us because we have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Now last time in verses 1 through 5, we considered the first five of these benefits. In 5.1, Paul started by saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have... And then he laid out the first five blessings that belong to us in Christ. And... You see those up on the screen right now. First, we have peace with God. Second, we stand firmly established in His grace. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we boast in our tribulations. And then finally last week, we have hope that never disappoints. This morning we'll examine the three remaining benefits that belong to all who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And these three are every bit as amazing and miraculous as those that we considered last time. Now please note that because of the way Paul uh, weaves these ideas together through this passage, my outline is, uh, is really based on key themes rather than on sharp divisions within the verses. I'm going to bounce around a little bit this time, uh, but I think it'll it'll uh, be clear as we proceed. Here are the three benefits of our justification that continue from the five we saw last time. We're going to look at these this morning. First, we have been reconciled to God. Second, we shall be saved from God's wrath. And this one ties closely to some of what went on in the worship this morning. Third, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to uh, read this passage, and I want to do what Nate had us do last week, and that's to stand for the reading of Scripture. I've always wanted to do that. Clifford did it once. Nate did it last week. I'm going to do it again. So <laughs> maybe we'll make it a tradition. If we can stand to sing our praises to God, we can stand when His Word speaks to us. Romans 5, verses 6-11, through 11, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Loving Father, we come before You this morning and we ask that You would make our hearts attentive to Your Word. We thank You for this amazing enumeration of blessings that Paul has opened up and laid out before us. And we pray, Lord, that that we would take You at Your Word. We would see what You say about these things and we we would know with confidence that all of us who have believed in Jesus Christ have all these things in full measure. And we would also understand, Father, what claim that makes on our lives. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. The first benefit that Paul lays out for us is God's work of reconciliation. The word reconciled isn't directly used in verses 6 through 8, but I am convinced that it's the central idea in those verses. These verses speak of the enmity or hostility that existed between God and us and that is as a result of our sin. And they speak of God's provision at the cross to resolve that enmity by reconciling us to Himself. Now, Paul directly uses the word reconciled and reconciliation in verses 10 and 11. And he speaks there of our reconciliation to God as an accomplished fact, just as he has already spoken of our justification. Both are already fully accomplished. The phrase, having been reconciled, that we'll see in verse 10, is structured the same as having been justified in verse 1. Both are done. Now, Paul gives us five critical things that he wants us to know about God's work of reconciliation. First, our condition when God reconciled us. Secondly, at what time God reconciled us. Third, how God reconciled us. And then God's motive for reconciling us. And finally, in what direction that reconciliation took place. Now, some of that may be a little unclear at this point, but it will become clear as we proceed. First, Paul talks about our condition at the time that Christ died to reconcile us to God. In Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, and another little element in verse 10, he says, he lays out four things. He says, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So we were helpless. We were ungodly. In verse 8, he says, God demonstrates His own Lord toward us, His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then finally, in verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Four words. Helpless. Ungodly. Sinners, enemies, 
It's not a very pretty picture. (laughs) The word helpless is the word that means weak, incapable, unable. When Christ died for us, He didn't do so to somehow meet us halfway or to show us how to make ourselves righteous. He died for us precisely because we could not make ourselves righteous. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people have nothing to offer to God. The second word, ungodly, is a very strong negative word, particularly in Paul's usage. Listen for a moment to the kinds of behaviors with which he associates the term ungodly in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are, and listen to this list, lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The label ungodly is the opposite of godly. That is, it is the antithesis of all that is in keeping with the character of God. And it's a title that applies to every human being before God reconciles us to Himself through the death of Jesus Christ. Paul says we were helpless, we were ungodly, and we were sinners. A sinner is simply someone who misses the mark of God's holiness and righteousness. And as Paul has already made crystal clear in chapters 1 through 3, we all miss the mark. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Finally, in verse 10, Paul adds one one more element to this picture of what we were like before God brought us to faith in Christ and reconciled us. He says... God reconciled us to Himself while we were enemies. See, our sin didn't merely put a wedge between us and God. (laughs) That's way too mild. Our sin made us enemies of God. It puts us at odds with all that is true of God's character and nature, and it made us the deserving objects of God's eternal wrath. Our sin placed us in the realm of darkness and death, completely outside the realm of light and life, which characterizes our holy God. Again, Ephesians chapter 2 makes it very clear that our alliance before we were saved was not with God, it was with Satan. As those who were opposed to God. Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among among them, we all, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind And we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. You remember Romans 1, he talked about degrading passions and a depraved mind. He wasn't just talking about pagans 
who never heard the message of truth. He was talking about all mankind, and that's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. There are only two sides in this great spiritual battle that has raged since the fall of Adam and Eve, and we were all on the wrong side. The second thing that Paul tells us about God's work of reconciliation has to do with the time at which that reconciliation was accomplished. In verse 6, Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, there are a couple of prominent views on the meaning of the phrase, at the right time. First is that Christ died for us at the time in history that was appointed by God from before the foundations of time. This seems to match up well with Paul's statement in chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, that God passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. That He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The second view is that the right time of which Paul speaks in 5.6 focuses more on our need than on the time in history when the death of Christ occurred. And this seems to fit the immediate context well because Paul uses phrases like, while we were still helpless, while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies. The idea would then be that God reconciled us to Himself through the death of Christ at the time when we were most desperately in need of that reconciliation, at a time when we could do nothing to help ourselves. Now, personally, I see no compelling reason to believe that Paul isn't saying both. Christ's death came at the appointed time in God's plan of redemption, the time that He decreed from before the foundations of the earth. And at the same time, it is true that Christ's death came when, in reference to our condition before God, we were lost and utterly helpless to do anything to address that enmity ourselves. God's time was perfect. The third thing that, that Paul tells us, he tells us that our, first that our, uh, what our condition was when God reconciled us. He tells us at what time He reconciled us, and now He tells us how He accomplished that reconciliation. Again, verses 6 through 8, with an element in verse 10. He says, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? Through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Everything that Paul says about the instrumentality, the means by which we are reconciled to God, points to the cross. Without Christ's payment for our sins at the cross, we would still be in our sins. They would still be on our own shoulders. And there is nothing we can ever do that will add to that payment. We sang about that this morning. His work is finished. As believers, God commands and empowers our obedience. 
But we must never think that our works have anything at all to do with our righteous standing before God. Our reconciliation was the work of Jesus Christ alone, and He accomplished that reconciliation fully and forever when He died and was raised. What motivated God to do this miraculous work by which we have become reconciled to Him? The answer in one word, by God's declaration, is love. Verse 8, Romans 5, one of the most precious verses I know. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The act by which God reconciled us to Himself, the death of Jesus Christ, is the preeminent expression of His love. It is the single greatest act of love in all of history. It is through that one act that we know with absolute certainty that God loves us. Paul said, uh, he had just said in verse 5, that the reason our hope in God does not disappoint is because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. By the way, that word poured out is the same one that occurs in the passage Arian opened with this morning about the new covenant, the blood of the new covenant that's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As we saw last time, that word poured out is the same word Jesus used to describe new wine gushing out from old wineskins that have burst open. Paul is talking about love that is abundant beyond all measure. Love that overflows like a fountain fed by a spring. And now he proceeds to tell us more about that amazing love. And we just saw in verse 6 that Paul said, when Christ died for us, we were helpless and ungodly. Then in verses 7 and 8, he paints for us a vivid contrast to drive home the magnitude, the weightiness of the love that God has for us that He demonstrated toward us at the cross. The contrast that He draws is between what man would typically do and what God has done. In verse 7 He says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Now many people have trouble with verse 7. <laughs> Because they think that the righteous man and the good man are two different men, that those are two different categories. But I believe Paul is using those two terms synonymously, and I believe there's precedent for that. In other words, the good man and the righteous man are the same man. In 3.10, he said on the negative side, there is none righteous, not even one. And in 3.12, he said there is no, no one who does good, not even one. The absence of goodness and the absence of righteousness go hand in hand, as does the presence of goodness and righteousness. You can't have one without the other. And if you don't have one, you don't have either. Apart from God's redeeming work, none of us has either. 
In Romans 5, 7, I believe Paul is simply saying, hardly ever would someone forfeit his own life even for a good and righteous person. Although it's not inconceivable that someone would do so. He's presenting a best case for how sacrificial men might be. Then having laid out that best case, he goes on to say, but God. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His point is that God's love is not like men's love. God doesn't wait until there's something lovable about man before He acts at tremendous cost to Himself to bring man into relationship with Himself. Instead, God's love is such that He poured out the life's blood of His only begotten Son to redeem those who not only were not good, but who were His enemies. Back in chapter 3, we saw that Paul pulled no punches in describing just how utterly worthless we were. He said, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good. Excuse me. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Can we get any worse than that? God didn't save us because there was something in us that warranted His favor. There was not one thing in us that could ever commend us to God. He saved us because He chose to love us. And the absolute proof of His love is the death of Jesus Christ in our place. (laughs) Do you want to know with certainty that you are the object of God's love? Do you want to know the magnitude of the love that God has for you? Then you need look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Are you still looking for God to do something to prove His love for you? How many times have you heard someone begin a sentence with, if God is so loving, then why doesn't He whatever? Have you as a believer ever found yourself longing for God to to somehow prove to you that He still loves you? Beloved, we insult our Savior when we who have been redeemed, reborn, justified, and reconciled to God question His love for us. If I truly knew the breadth and height and depth of the love that compelled the Father to forsake His own Son, to take from me and to put on Him the ugly, heinous weight of my sins, and to pour out His wrath against His Son instead of against me. I would never even think to question His love for me. If God never did one single thing for me, 
after applying the blood of Jesus Christ to my sins, I would know all that I ever need to know about His love for me. Nothing else that anyone will ever do can begin to even come close to that one act of love. In fact, by God's own declaration, nothing that He will ever do will ever overshadow that amazing act of love. The death of Christ is the demonstration of God's love for us. We need no other. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 Every other manifestation of God's love for us, and there are many, now and in eternity, is a ripple effect of that one event, that one incomparable act. By the way, even the godly love of other believers for us is but an outworking of the love that God proved to us when He gave His Son to die in our place. That's what John says in 1 John 4. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then he says, by this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God. But that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. His Son satisfied His wrath against us, reconciled us to Him, justified us, made us righteous and acceptable in His sight. That is the demonstration of love. When you get right down to it, every example of genuine love that exists in the universe is but an outworking of the love that God manifested before the eyes of both men and angels when Jesus died on the cross. All right, that's God's motive. In what direction was reconciliation made? The last, that's the last thing that Paul tells us about God's work of reconciliation in this passage, and it's no small point. It's very significant that in Romans 5.10, Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Through the death of his son. Second Corinthians 5 verses 18 and 19 puts it this way. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. You'll notice Paul never says God was reconciled to us. He never says, we and God were reconciled to each other. The cross was not about God turning around. It was about God turning us around. Now that certainly does not mean that the enmity or hostility that, that was created by our sin existed only on our side. 
In fact, that, that's the weak issue. That's the small issue. It's not that we were angry with God, but that God wasn't angry with us. What Paul is saying is that the side that required changing was us, not God. It's surely true that before we were redeemed, we were hostile toward God and toward the things of God. Paul has made that point very forcefully in chapter 1. But our hostility toward God is of no consequence compared with the righteous anger that God bore toward us because of our sin. Our hostility toward Him was unjustified and did not demand any change in Him to be resolved. His hostility toward us, on the other hand, was fully justified and demanded a radical change in us in order for the enmity to be resolved and for us to be brought into relationship and fellowship with the Holy God. That's why Paul always speaks of reconciliation as God reconciling us to himself, not vice versa. If today or any other day you bear any hint of anger or hostility toward God, the problem is not with God. The problem is with you. It's not God who needs to change. It's you who need to be changed by God. And by the way, apathy or indifference toward God constitutes opposition to Him just as surely as does anger. Is it possible for a believer to be an enemy of God? Well, in terms of the believer's position before God, certainly not. You either stand before Him as an unbeliever still dead in your sins or you stand before Him as a believer reconciled to Him and cleansed from your sins. But in terms of the believer's practice, I'd have to say it is possible for a believer to be in the enemy's camp. In James chapter 4, James is talking to the same people that he has repeatedly referred to as my brethren and my beloved brethren. In other words, he's talking to Christians, believers. But in James 4 verses 4 and 5, he says this, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then know this. God saved you to glorify Himself through you. He jealously desires the Spirit that He has placed within you. The Holy Spirit. And He will not stand by while you either passively or actively fail to humbly, gratefully honor Him as God and submit to Him in obedience. I'm convinced that the harshest punishments that God dispenses this side of heaven are directed toward those who belong to Him, not to those who don't. If you disagree, uh, I'd love to spend a few hours with you walking through passages of Scripture that I believe firmly establish that fact in both Testaments. The God who forsook His Son 
to save you will never allow you to find satisfaction or blessing in anything or anyone other than Him. He is your life. He is your sole reason for being. And He says to you and to me, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In verses 6-8, through eight, Paul explained God's work of reconciliation by which He destroyed the barrier, barrier of our sin and brought us face to face with Himself, turning us from enemies into children and friends. Now in verses 9 and 10, He tells us about the ramifications of God's gifts of reconciliation and justification as they bear on a future event the outpouring of His righteous wrath. Verses 9 and 10 are very interesting. They're parallel statements. They have a very similar structure. Uh, In both of these verses, you see the structure, having been much more shall shall we be. Okay, so there's... There's that structure in both. Verse 9, much more than having been justified by by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Something past that points to something uh, future. Verse 10, much more. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Based on the very close parallel structure of these two verses, I believe the phrase, we shall be saved in verse 10, ties directly back to the same phrase in verse 9. That is, both are talking about the same salvation. And that is salvation from the future outpouring of God's wrath. I also believe that the phrase through Him in verse 9 and the phrase by His life in verse 10 are synonymous. If they are, then here's the question. How is it that we are saved from the wrath of God by the life of Christ? Because we have been united with Christ, both in His death and in His life, because His life has become our life, we have the inviolable promise of God that we shall be saved from His wrath. If God justified us and reconciled us to Himself when we were helpless, ungodly, sinners, and enemies, if He gave to us the life of Christ when we possessed and deserved only death, then it's certain without a doubt that He will deliver us from the day when He pours out His wrath on those who do not know Him. That phrase, much more than, that occurs in both these verses points, I believe, to a very Hebrew form of argument in which one argues from the greater to the lesser. Here's how Martin Lloyd-Jones explains his understanding of Paul's flow of thought. He says, Before... We were outside His life, outside His love, as it were, enemies. Now, we are in the life of Christ, and therefore our position is absolutely certain and secure. If God sent His Son to die for us when we were outside as enemies, how much more will He do for us now that we are inside as children? 
If a man does something for another man standing on his doorstep who has vilified him and hated him and robbed him and been an enemy to him, if he shows kindness to him, how much more likely is he to show kindness to his children who come from his own body? That is the argument. End of quote. Verses 9 and 10 speak of a salvation that is yet to come. A salvation guaranteed to us because of what God has already done for us. What has already been accomplished through the death of Christ. In the study questions to prepare for this week, I uh, posed a question that I'd like to repeat at this point. There are two events, one past and one future, both of which involve the execution of God's eternal wrath against the sins of men. What are those two events? And who is it that receives the wrath of God in each of them? It's important to note that I'm talking about God's eternal wrath. That's what Paul's talking about. Not temporary wrath. Not correction. The second of the two events, I'll start there, is the one that is yet future. And that event is the great, what I believe is the great white throne judgment of God that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. We're not going to study that passage right now, but feel free to look at it on your own. I believe Romans 5, 9, and 10 are referring to that second judgment. The judgment in which those who have rejected Jesus Christ will be banished from the presence of God and from the glory of His power and thrown into the lake of fire forever. The only people who will stand before the throne of God on that day will be unbelievers. Those whose names are not found written in the book of life. And that will be the only moment in all of eternity in which they stand before the throne of God. They will not stand accepted. They will stand unclean, unholy, ruined, condemned. And they will bear the penalty for their own sin for all eternity. But all who have believed in Jesus Christ will be saved from the outpouring of God's wrath at that event. And the form that that salvation will take is that we will not even be among those standing to be judged on that day. Because we who believe in Jesus Christ have already been justified. We have already been reconciled to God. Our sin has already been judged. You see, there was another great event in the past, in 33 A.D., on a hill just outside Jerusalem. And God's eternal wrath was executed on that day as well. His righteous judgment against our sin was poured out and He did not turn a blind eye to our sin. He judged our sin in full and eternal measure. But on that day, His wrath was poured out on only one man. The perfect, sinless Son of God. So that, so that, being justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. 
There are some in the hearing of my voice this morning who believe that your sin is either too great or too persistent for God to truly forgive. Even some of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior may not believe that you can truly enjoy relationship and fellowship with God here and now because you're convinced that your sins still present an insurmountable barrier between you and God. That weighs heavily on my heart to know that some of you struggle with that. But it weighs infinitely more on the heart of God. He poured out the full measure of His fierce hatred of our sin on His one and only Son so that we who believe in Him would never suffer that wrath so that we would be the recipients of His love. And He wants us to know that. (laughs) He wants us to bank on that promise. The payment of the debt for our sin is finished. See, our reconciliation isn't a future event. It has been fully accomplished. The sins that you and I commit today most assuredly hinder our fellowship with God. But that fellowship is readily put back on track when we simply agree with God about our sin. And by the way, the word confess, the word homologeo, means the same mind. It means we have the same mind about our sin that God does. And you know what? I think a lot of the time we only do half of confession. Because if you and I agree with God about our sin, we not only agree that it's heinous, that it's a violation of His character, that it's wrong, we also agree that it's been paid for in full. For us who have been justified and reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, the sins that we commit do not touch our justification. They do not touch our reconciliation with Him. Our sins can never again make us the object of God's eternal wrath because He has already poured out His wrath on His Son. Now that doesn't mean God ignores the sins of His children any more than a loving earthly father ignores the sins of His children. God has a lot to say about that in Hebrews 12, doesn't He? He disciplines us as our perfect Heavenly Father. And His discipline is painful and sorrowful. He says it is in Hebrews 12. But according to that same passage, it is that very discipline that equips us to share in His holiness. It is that discipline that produces in us the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The only threat that God's righteousness poses to us as believers is the threat of pain. But that very pain proves that we are His children. It proves that we are His children. And that He is at work in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's response to our sin now is not a curse. It's a blessing. The curse was destroyed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Do not belittle what He did for you at the cross by making your sin bigger than His amazing grace. The last of the miraculous benefits 
that Paul speaks of is that we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 11. It's interesting. He picks up the very same language that he used in verse 3. He says, and not only this, but we also exult. And the word exult means boast. He's saying there are three things that we boast in. Verse 2, verse 3, and verse 11. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, we boast in our tribulation. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we look back at Paul's wording throughout this whole passage, verses 1 through 11, we see that uh, every good thing that we have as the redeemed of God is attributed to God. And Paul repeatedly declares that all of these amazing benefits that we have received as those who are justified come to us through Jesus Christ. From God, through Christ. Verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our salvation, our access into this grace in which we stand. Verse 6 through 8, specifically verse 8, the demonstration of God's love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's through Him. Verse 9, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Verse 10, having been reconciled to God through the death of His Son, we shall be saved by His life. And then finally, verse 11, not only this, but we exult in, we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. All of it, every good thing and every perfect gift that comes down from above from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, every bit of it comes to us through Jesus Christ. So here are the things that Paul tells us we've been given as part and parcel of the free gift of justification in Christ. We have peace with God. We stand firmly established in His grace. We boast in hope of the glory of God. We boast in our tribulations. We have hope that never disappoints. We have been reconciled to God we shall be saved from the wrath of God. And we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And this isn't a complete list. Paul will have much more to say about what we've been given in Christ. He'll talk about our freedom from bondage to sin and to the flesh. He'll talk about the life and peace that we enjoy as we walk in the Spirit. About the certainty that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord about the transformation that God is at work to do in us through the renewing of our minds. There is so much that God has given to us, and He has given it all to us in Jesus Christ. We are rich beyond measure, beloved. And God sets these things before us 
Because He wants us to know that we have them. He wants us to lay hold of every treasure that belongs to us in Christ. He doesn't want us to live as paupers. He wants us to live as children of the King of Kings. He wants us to know these things, to be certain of them, and to be radically changed by them. Dear Father, it's clear from this passage that You intend for us who believe in Jesus Christ to know what we have been given in Him. And You intend that that knowledge should change the way we live. You've given us every cause to be filled with encouragement, hope, expectation of good things from Your gracious hand every day of our lives. And Father, You've given us everything that we need to be a people made strong by the certainty of what we have been given. That we may be effective instruments in Your hands for the accomplishment of Your eternal purposes. Use us, Lord, to build up one another and to present Your life to those who do not yet possess these precious gifts. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.